everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And we're here in the night, in the dark. Nice. You're welcome. What an episode. I'm excited. This what a is, big film. This is a big, rambling film, not unlike the house in which it takes place. Um, we are talking about Robert Wise's 1963 film, The Haunting. And this, as we mentioned in our last episode, when we were saying we were going to do this, that we have covered the remake first. But remind me how we covered the remake. We did an episode on Hollywood horror, like big right. budget horror. Okay. Uh, so it was The Haunting, and then we also did uh, World, World War Z. Z. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So completely different films, completely different themes, but um, they kind of fucked it up because this movie rules. Oh, this film is pretty fucking perfect. Mm-hmm. And it comes from a pretty perfect source material. Yes. And it's so eerie and restrained mm-hmm. and has a lot of things happening within it, but it's all up to interpretation. Yes. But it is truly one of the films that I think is scary and is really emotional at the same time. Yeah, definitely a big splash in in the literary world in terms of modern gothic haunted house horror uh, and definitely a a story that has been retold numerous times, not just in the 90s remake, but more recently by Mike Flanagan, the miniseries that was a big deal in spite of its many foibles, but it just goes to show this story still has legs and, uh, and we can revise it any old decade and still get some mileage out of it. Yeah, it's a story that lends itself to being tackled, I think, every generation. Mm-hmm. I think every director would probably have a really different take on this story, and that's what's really exciting. But it's also kind of challenging because I, I really think its first iteration in the film world, in the media world, is probably its best, and it's hard to top that. Yeah, I think so too. And what I also think is really interesting about this story is, you know, when we talk about women in horror, which we talk about a lot, you know, Do Mary, we? Mary Mary Shelley comes up a lot as the preeminent female author in horror. Shirley Jackson kind of gets short shrift. I feel like she has these kind of like ebbs and flows, Mm -hmm. like every so often, kind of like, you know, the haunting story itself. Like it gets rediscovered and then like, why aren't more people talking about her? Mm -hmm. And then kind of dies down again. But she is such an incredible writer. I, I haven't read all of her pieces, but I'm always so blown away by the way she uses every tool at her disposal. Mm -hmm. to create something really singular and unique, but also kind of universal in many ways. A lot of autobiography, Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is couched in symbolism and metaphor, and so, you know, I think it was received for what it was, and it wasn't received maybe for, for, like, its staunchly feminist and revolutionary takes when it came out. So what have you read by Shirley Jackson? So I've now read The Haunting of Hill House, Mm -hmm. um, which I read for this episode. I love her short story the lottery. I love that too. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then outside of that, a couple other short stories I, I haven't read in a long time. So I, they're kind of in the backlogs of my memory. But yeah, that's about it. I have not read The Haunting of Hill House, but I read The Lottery and I read We Have Always Lived in the Castle, uh, which was really interesting. It really spoke to the agoraphobia that informed her later life. And we're going to talk more about her biography and the autobiographical aspects that show up in her work a little bit later. But I think um, she was a writer who wrote from the heart and she wrote about her experience and it really resonated with a lot of people. And I think that's a big part of why this film is increasingly relevant, even 50, 60, I'm trying to do the math. So The Lottery, as we mentioned, made a big splash when it was published in The New Yorker. She wrote for Good Housekeeping. She wrote all across the board. But The Haunting of Hill House, published in 1959, was the book upon which the film from 1963 was made and let's go there. Let's take that carriage ride and hope we don't get thrown into a tree. The haunting. God, it knows I'm here. My name's Markway, Dr. Markway, a scientist interested in the supernatural, the unnatural, if you like. I came to Hill House to find the key to another world. Assisting me in this exploration of the unknown was Eleanor, Nell, who could look back into the past, and Theo, something of a witch. 
who could see into the future. This is Luke, who didn't believe in anything, until evil, patient and waiting, made him change his mind. Stop it! God. God. Whose hand was I holding? How many of us take seriously the things we cannot or do not want to understand simply because we are afraid? Elena, you're Paul! Did you hear me calling? This house. You have to watch it every minute. The Haunting was produced and directed by Robert Wise, brilliant producer of West Side Story. The stars consist of a cross-section of top talent in the world of entertainment. Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin. What does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace, but some houses, like Hill House, are born bad? Dr. Markway, in an effort to prove the existence of ghosts, leases the very haunted and notorious Hill House to conduct his experiment. Built by the eccentric Hugh Crane, the house is believed to have caused the death of Hugh's two wives, his aged daughter Abigail, and Abigail's companion. Markway has invited Eleanor, who has spent her entire adult life caring for her aging mother, and a cosmopolitan psychic, Theodora, to the house. They're also joined by the house's would-be heir, Luke. The four live in the house exploring its oddities as paranormal occurrences grow, from unexplained sounds to mysterious chalk writing and unexplained physical touch. Eleanor becomes convinced at first that she belongs to this group, which she has always wanted, and then this turns into believing she belongs in the house. Once Markway's wife, Grace, arrives at the house, Eleanor increasingly loses her grip on reality. Grace goes missing after insisting on staying in the nursery, which the group have identified as a hot spot for ghostly activities. Markway becomes increasingly worried about Eleanor's mental state and insists she leaves the house. As Eleanor takes a car and drives to the front gates, she loses control of the car, crashing into a tree dying as Grace reemerges. At the site of the accident, Theo remarks that Eleanor got what she wanted, which was to remain in the house. Forever and ever and ever. And when I say that this is the prototypical haunted house narrative, I feel like the haunting walked so that so many other films could run. But few have ever matched it. I agree. I, I think what I thought of most re-watching uh, The Haunting... 63, which I feel like I've seen so many times peppered throughout my 40 years on this earth that I can't even remember the first time I saw it. It it didn't make that big an impression initially, such that I would remember it. But I I, I thought about the innocence a lot. Mm. I thought about the innocence a lot, especially in the prologue when they were talking about how Abigail's companion was neglecting her because she had this secret illicit lover, and they had this, you know, scandal was part of what haunted the house. But It's a pretty different tale. Um, I I think there are some narrative threads that it shares. Certainly Mike Flanagan also tackled that one to different effect, another. But we'll go further in there later. In the meantime, do you remember the first time you saw this film? So I'm pretty sure I saw it in my late teens or early 20s. And it scared me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my biggest sense memory of it. And I think as I kind of have grown with horror and just consume more and more of it, I am still so impressed by this movie because as I mentioned earlier in the episode, it is so restrained. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to say maybe one jump scare when Grace kind of like falls out of the uh, top of that staircase. That's so funny. I'm sorry. It is a good jump scare. It's a little janky too. (laughs) Um, But everything else is like pure suggestion Mm -hmm. and it's all inferred Mm -hmm. and I and I love a jump scare we both love a jump scare and like there's so many ways to be scary but this has such a kind of pure terror to it Mm -hmm. and I always just believe like Hill House is haunted 
It's mm-hmm. haunted and it's evil. Like, I believe all of the, like, mythos that they take from Jackson's book and put really front and center. But it was only kind of more recently that I realized many people are like, oh, it's all in Eleanor's head. Yeah, and I think that's some of the narrative tissue that it shares with the innocents is is that it does beg the question because everything supernatural that happens in the haunting is implied and is suggested really strongly but really beautifully. I think Robert Wise did a beautiful job of it where it sounds and it's characters explaining that they're feeling a cold spot, that we're just taking them at their word. We can only go by what we see and we don't see anything. And I think that's interesting and I want to talk to you a bit more about that. But let's start with the book. Okay. Let's start with basically the source material. Now, I first became aware of Shirley Jackson, really aware of Shirley Jackson and her contribution to horror with um, Room Morgue 170, which is the September 2016 issue. It was before I was editor, and April Snellings wrote a really beautiful feature, mostly about the woman, mostly about Shirley Jackson and her contribution and her life, and described her as this really oddball lady. You know, she married a literary critic and she raised four children, but she wrote a great, like, body of work in addition to doing that. And she was published in women's magazines uh, as well as magazines like The New Yorker. And her, her thing was basically humorous and acerbic takes on domestic life. Uh, she was a self-described witch. She was a practitioner of the dark arts. And there are some recurring themes uh, when you look at her body of work, including, like, the horror space women in a society that allowed them limited control over their own lives. And I think a lot of that was informed by, you know, her own role as a mother and a writer and and some of the mental illness that she struggled with toward the end of her life. Yeah, I read um, a really great biography of Shirley Jackson a couple years ago called Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life by Ruth Franklin. Uh, It's excellent. I highly recommend it because I think what Franklin does is she blends telling the story of Shirley Jackson with some literary analysis built into it, talking about her actual work. And it's really fascinating and so readable, but it's just got so much info packed in there. Highly, highly recommend checking that out. And Franklin spends a lot of time talking about, like, there's a really solid chapter about The Haunting of Hill House. It delves into uh, how she wrote it, the stuff that was in it, and then that got dropped, and all of this, you know, great kind of stuff if you really want to dig into Shirley Jackson's writing process. But as Andrea mentioned, it brings about a lot of the anxieties and reoccurring themes that Jackson had in her writing. One of those that Franklin takes a lot of pains to point out was Jackson's own dealing with her marriage to Stanley Hyman's, which was immensely tumultuous. And the book takes a lot of time exploring that relationship. But in relation to Hill House, one of the things that Franklin does is she takes various notes and drafts and letters to friends where Jackson was putting more kind of like marriage subplots into the book and then removed all of them. Mm -hmm. But the ghosts of them, shall we say, remain within the story. Uh, To quote Franklin, to be married, Shirley always feared, was to lose her sense of self, to disintegrate precisely what happens to Eleanor in the grip of the house. Mm. And then Franklin goes on to point out that Jackson had always been interested in houses in her stories, particularly how women attempt to at least turn them into homes. And it becomes this melting pot of anxieties for modern women that I think many of us still face. Yes, I think that is actually the crux of this film, and it's how I read it. I've got more to say on the intersections between the house and the home and the household that I want to get into a little later. But let's maybe move on to the film. So... When The Haunting of Hill House was released, it was released to really good reviews, did really well, sold lots of copies, and almost immediately, um, one of the people who read it and loved it was Robert Wise, who was under contract with MGM, and they made an offer and bought the rights to The Haunting of Hill House for a bit over $60,000, which was a very generous buy. ching And, you know, from Franklin's book, Jackson and Hyman's had just— never really had money. They had, oh, like financial pressure was a very, very real thing to them. So this alleviated a lot of that stress. They fixed up their own house and then did a few other things. And as 
Franklin writes, it was the first time they ever were able to open a savings account. Oh, wow. So it made a huge difference to them. And again, pulling from Franklin's book, Jackson was very removed from the film production process. Okay. She chatted with the filmmakers, but was basically like, I got your money. I got the check. Right. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And then eventually when she saw the film, overall, it sounds like she really liked it. She had some small quibbles with it, Mm -hmm. like anyone would. But overall, I get the sense that she thought it was a very successful adaptation. And I imagine sold a lot more of her books and, of course, went on to uh, give her a lot more platform within the industry. Right. So I have that. Wise brought the story to his screenwriter, Nelson Gidding, who crafted a screenplay that was a bit more akin to The Wizard of Oz, where Mm -hmm. Hill House was actually a mental institution for Eleanor. And from what I understand, again, I haven't read The Haunting of Hill House, but there's a description of um, surfaces being soft and almost padded. I mean, there are all these, like, little like for lack of a better term easter eggs right that if it if something strikes you in that writing you could go off in a whole tangent mm-hmm. you could build a 90 to 2 hour long movie Right. Yeah. So Gidding was saying, like, we'll make this whole story where Eleanor thinks that she's visiting this house and she's investigating this supernatural thing, but really she's institutionalized. And and it was Shirley who was just kind of like, that sounds nice, but my story was written as a ghost story yeah. and it's a supernatural story. And they respected that. And apparently they also ran the idea by her, like, we need to do something about the title. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? Allegedly, it was Jackson's idea to shorten the title to The Haunting, which— they went with, and it worked. So insofar as perhaps she was removed from the production, she did have some input, and I don't know. It always kind of matters to me that the novelist doesn't feel blindsided, ripped off, or exploited by the film adaptation. I enjoy that about this production history. Yeah, and it's a, like, it's a fucking classy affair. It's not just like Eli Roth bought you a six-pack and then— <laughs> Your name is forever associated with him. Uh, She got paid well. And Robert Wise, like, he's such an interesting filmmaker. He made this film after he directed and won several Academy Awards for West Side Story. Because then, then he made The Haunting, and then he went on to make The Sound of Music. Wow, I can't believe we got the rights to Julie Andrews. (laughs) And and so he, like, had this incredible, like, career. And The Haunting, again, it was not a shabby affair. This, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a big film. It did really well. Big budget. Yeah. And it had, like, legit stars behind it. You know, some up-and-comers to really ground it. It's a really great film. And what I think is so interesting is that Wise has talked about how The Haunting, for him, was a way to pay homage to to his mentor, Val Luton, famous for many of the horror films of the 1940s, most notably to me anyway, The Cat People. Mm -hmm. And Wise really picks up on the notion of this house as diseased, not sane. And he employs his camera using, like, tricks, then new technology, and a lot of, like, sound design, which was I learned through my research, actually one of his first gigs in the film industry was doing sound design. Was doing sound, yeah. Yeah, and so he was able to kind of pull in a lot of themes that Luton like embedded in his own films, which kind of also align with Jackson's story. And I, I would love to one day do an episode on Val Luton. He's such an interesting filmmaker, and his films are so interesting. But this film and Wise's direction is so reliant on ambiguity and atmosphere and mm-hmm. all of the stuff I feel like in a pitch meeting these days wouldn't fly. Totally. But when you see it executed as well as it is here, it's just incredible. Yeah, I really get the sense that a filmmaker like Robert Wise was like, this is a cool story and I could make a fucking cool movie out of it. I could do this and I could do that. You get a sense of that primitive nerdery of like, how can I make this scary? How can I use sound? How can I use weird points of view and weird lenses to make the angles all come together weirdly? And I think he was able to scratch that nerdy cinematic itch while keeping some of the really heady and important themes uh, in Jackson's work that I think was really important. And I think that does speak to the strength of the novel because there is a lot of text pulled directly from the novel. A lot of the opening descriptor of Hill House um, and... The Markaway voiceover? Is that like right from the book? Yeah, that's that's imbued in the book. But he was Montague? 
Yes, is, that is right? Montague. And there's a couple things that are like truncated slightly, which I, I get makes kind of sense within, you know, just wanting to tell a more straightforward narrative. Like Hugh Crane had two daughters in the book and they kind of fought over Hill House and that became oh, a thing. Okay. It's kind of like a couple pages that, that's interesting within the novel, but mm-hmm. filmically I don't think makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get like to the meat and potatoes of everything, I think Wise and Giddings made some good choices there. A lot of the character dialogue back and forth is quite similar. Similar, if not exact. Yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff within there and a lot of movements within the film that are really pulled directly from the book. And when you have source material like that, why wouldn't you? Right. Why wouldn't you? But so many do. So as we dive into the winding and endless Hill House, I also wanted to take a bit of time in this conversation to situate the American haunted house. So I pulled from a book that I have called Haunting Experiences, Ghosts in Contemporary Folklore. We'll link it in the show notes. And they have a lot of chapters dealing with the different iterations of ghosts, where they tend to be, how folklore interprets them, etc., etc. Um, now, for their chapter about haunted houses, um, they and I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, but haunted house stories really grew in prominence from Gothic novels. Gloomy castles and mansions, which are still littered across Europe, provided the backdrop to many of these stories. Uh, Andrea, I know you haven't been to England, but if anyone is in England or has been to England or goes to see their relatives in England like I do— the British have a, like, really weird obsession with keeping these huge manor houses that were once owned by the aristocracy. Okay. And, like, I don't know if they're free or you pay, like, five pounds and you just go look at these ornate houses. And it's interesting because there's so much history there, but you're like, these people have a lot of fucking space. Are they all intact the way Hill House is? A like lot of them the are, junk? but there's also, like, the gift shop. Of course. You got to go buy a tea towel. Um, and that goes to the upkeep because a lot of these aristocratic families have kind of, like lost some of their, if not all of their fortune over the centuries and decades. Mm-hmm. So they're like, we won't give up this house. Buy this tea towel. Save Mount Castlethorn. <laughs> anyway, it's a very British thing that maybe it's in the rest of Europe, but I certainly had this like very interesting experience of going to England and just being like driven to a beautiful ornate house and be like, all right, now we go look around it. I'd be into that. It's interesting. I feel like I'd be more into that than, than a museum, per se. It's like someone lived here. Someone used this stuff. Someone, someone someone fucked in this room. Lots of people. They could do more with the fucking stories. Yeah. But However, let me get back to the actual points here, but um, as America lacked these kinds of buildings, American horror stories increasingly relied on dowager Victorian and Second Empire mansions that were home to the upper classes during the Gilded Age. What went on in these homes, the general public could really only guess at. Hence, there was always an air of otherworldliness to them. And I think Hill House really fits that description. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was built by Hugh Crane in like this remote part of New England, mm-hmm. uh, which feels so fucking waspy already. And, you know, it has this kind of mythos around it. I know certainly being Canadian and from Canada as a settler, our history here as a settler is only so long. Right. So we're always kind of like, ooh, that Tim Hortons is a hundred years old. <laughs> the McDonald's near me has just closed and it was the oldest McDonald's in Toronto. It was 40 years old. Stop The it. Galleria one? Yeah, just as an aside. Oh, I'm so sad for you that closed. I'm not at all sad oh. that that closed. Um, another writer I wanted to bring into this conversation is someone by the name of Dale Bailey and he writes in his book American Nightmares, The Haunted House Formula in American Popular Fiction. To quote Bailey, haunted houses are a profoundly versatile tool for examining the anxieties and tensions inherent in our national experiment. The haunted house finally seems like nothing less than a symbol of America and the American mind, of all the ghosts that haunt us, from the dark legacy of slavery to the failed war in Vietnam. I mean, A, that's a lot to take in. But also, I think if you look at any ghost story, 
you can just always kind of start to look at why are these ghosts haunting us? Mm -hmm. What about it is haunting and why? And what does that tell us about our current state? And and to me, the anxieties and the haunting are all really around the notion of acceptance and of gender. Interesting. I have a bit of a different read on that, but I think my read is really informed on everything you're saying about just kind of like the younger version of an old haunted house. The fact that, you know, in the in the U.S. context, we know everything that happened in Hill House from its building to now. It's not that long a history and everything that's happened in it is bad. And there's something that's so conclusive about that as opposed to, oh, you know, this castle was erected sometime in medieval times and we don't know who lived there and we don't know what happened. Maybe a lot of good things happened. Maybe a lot of terrible things happened. We only know of the terrible things that happened in Hill House. And, and I think that's relevant. And I want to talk more about the ghosts that haunt this household. But, like, what is a household, really? What is a household versus a home versus a hearth? That is such a good question and something I was like, I don't know the answer to. Andrea's going to answer. Yay! So I feel like you already know what I'm going to say. I don't. You don't know that I'm going to say that the house and the home are all... Social constructions, what the blah, 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 blah. That's my question, is I feel like the house is a structure. Yes. And the home is an emotional state. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much on par. We conceive of the house as a physical structure, a dwelling, and especially in the Western context, in the format of a single family. Whereas we think of the home, the home comprises the material building with the bare domestic necessities occupied by people, but it also includes the meanings that we attach to that physical structure, primarily privacy, stability, and safety. It's so much more than a physical site. Like when we talk about like your hometown, it's not necessarily the place you're living now, but it's it's the place you grew up. It's the place that you understand. It's the place that you call home. And the household is even more subjective and symbolic. And that's where the social construction comes in. It's a place of gender roles, social reproduction, domestic ideology, and all of that normative shit. And there are rituals associated with the home and the hearth, and like the idea of sharing food as a sign of kinship. That's an old-ass anthropological concept that still echoes today. And when you look at how homes are built, you know, there's a space to chill and relax, and there's a space to cook, and there's a space to eat together, and there's a space to sleep, and the parents sleep here, and the children sleep here, and all of that, you know, has implications for how we view who should have what privacy against whom. But it's also really tricky to separate the house and the home because there are material aspects in making a house cozy. Like the difference between a house and a home has to do with furnishing and decoration, which in turn are indications of class and status. And you also have to consider the importance of the location of the home, whether it's within a community that one can belong to and contribute to, etc. And the internet has made the whole idea of community less material in a sense. But there's still a lot to be said for neighborhood dynamics contributing to one's experience of the home. Now, for Marxists, it's where labor is reproduced. It's a place where, you know, traditionally the paternal figure brings home the bacon, so to speak, and women labor to maintain that home such that the patriarch can rest and recharge and then return to go to work for pay. And it's also where those gender roles are reproduced, the notion of a household having certain responsibilities that are ascribed by gender. And I think, you know, insofar as we think of those traditional roles as traditional and old, I think our generation is still kind of, you know, bearing the brunt of that. Yeah. And I think, like, especially during the pandemic, as so many people went to work from home and schools were closed, it really reinforced these kind of notions because so many of us thought, we've moved beyond it. But there are so many couples where the woman almost inadvertently had to take on a full-time caretaker role once again if they have kids, and the man was expected to work, usually because 
he was making more money in these heteronormative households. That's right. So, like, not only are we looking at the fact that the common modern household requires two incomes just to sustain itself, and we're kind of grappling with, well, like, who's going to keep the home then? Well, both of us all the time. It's exhausting. It's way more than a 40-hour work week, so to speak. But, yeah, within the COVID context, it's also where we make our money. And for those of us who are outside of the normative nine to five work type thing, you know, like home is you work all the time. And even when you're checking your phone, there's work to be done at your leisure time. There's slippage between labor and leisure. And all of that is happening within the home. And I think that's important to consider. In Hill House, I feel like what's being reproduced is punishment of women under patriarchy as personified in this case by Hugh Crane. Can I tell you what I call Hugh Crane? Uh, Hugh Crane, misogynist property developer. Perfect. You know, copyrighted, faculty of horror. Innocent or sinful, young or old, Hill House targets those who adhere to a certain life script, the script of the virtuous lady life. And whether you adhere to that script or whether you reject it for for a variety of reasons as we get into the characters that inhabit Hill House, the end result is largely the same. Yeah. To pull in a quote from Bailey, who I referenced earlier, he writes about Hill House. With its tower erect against the sky, it is unmistakably male, and it doesn't treat its women kindly. No, it does not. Because if you look at the victims of Hill House, it's Hugh Crane's wives, it's Abigail, Eleanor, and then as well, there's also Theo, who is terrified at various points and like really feels the cold and feels very unsettled being there at different points, as well as Grace, Markway's wife, who just straight up goes missing. Mm-hmm. It's like clearly targeting the women, whereas when Markway and Luke feel something, they're kind of like, oh, we heard something outside. It was the dog. We, we went to go look. Yeah, for Markway, it's it's a source of supernatural fascination, and as an academic, that's his bread and butter. This and how is, do you feel? Because I feel like we've talked a little bit about this, because uh, Mark Way is um, an anthropologist, uh-huh. and you're a sociologist. Uh-huh. So I wanted to see if you could maybe just, again, remind us all what the difference between the two is, and then... If you, Andrea, were doing this experiment in Hill House, how would it be different? (laughs) Well, the difference between anthropology and sociology is anthropology tends to be more comparative in terms of our society versus other societies. And so, like, the idea of Markaway being an anthropologist interested in Hill House, like, he's not really an anthropologist. He's not like, oh, well, haunted houses in Europe are like this and haunted houses in domestic spheres in Zimbabwe are like this. I don't even think he's a sociologist either. He's a paranormal researcher. He's just... He's uh, a fucking academic who's just like, I need this grant. Well, I mean, like, think about nowadays. If you think about how fucking popular all these paranormal ghost hunting shows, they are the most popular thing possibly next to true crime. Mm-hmm. Hunting vampires, hunting werewolves, less so. The haunted house, the haunted space, and using modern scientific implements to detect and diagnose a haunted space is largely outside of academia. I hate to, It's something of a pseudoscience, and I, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but it's not fucking anthropology. And if you were doing this experiment, how would you run it? If I were doing this experiment, I mean, I feel like I would hope that at the end of this film, Markaway would be like, holy fucking shit, does this house ever hate women? <laughs> However, I don't think he arrived there. This house was just born bad. It's diseased. It's this. It's hysterical. He doesn't actually say it's hysterical, but he may as well. He may as well. And I thought it was so interesting at the end of the film, Grace is like, don't go back in there. When he's like, I'm going to go get your stuff. He's like, no, it got what it wanted. Yeah, yeah. I'll call someone eventually to let them know this woman died. Yeah. And you went missing for like half a day. I feel like he treats that as a byproduct of his research when to me that is the result of his research. That is what happened and that is what we learned if we learned anything from all of this. So you'd have like a little bit of a bra burning circle. That's right. Out front of Hill House. Mm -hmm. I would burn it down and I would sew the site with salt 
as Luke said, and even Luke, who looked at Hill House as his cash cow, his property, I feel like he's the only one in the film who was kind of afforded this arc where he thought a certain way and then he turned around on it by the end. Whereas everyone, Theo was like, this house is fucking bullshit. And it destroyed Eleanor. Yeah, and it's this interesting thing, as I was mentioning, like, I really feel like the haunting is this anxiety around acceptance and gender. So we're already kind of talking about the gendered aspect to this house and how it clearly wants to punish the women, which it needs to make it a home. That's why it's Hill House Mm -hmm. and not Hill Home. It's always going to be the stately manor. No one can live there. Um, And those who do kind of seem to go a bit mad. And this notion of acceptance, I think, is so interesting because if you look at, like, Jackson's own life as she was struggling with so many different things going on, you see this in Eleanor where she was struggling. I mean, we talked about this just, you know, in our elder horror episode Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of, like, caring for an aging mother for her adult life, and it fell to her because she was not married and didn't have kids and had to, like, grapple with all of these things, and then was finally like, I get to go have an adventure. Yeah. And I think the film handles it really well, this transition from, like, I'm so excited to be part of this group to then kind of you know, feeling those dynamics moving against you in the group mm-hmm. as things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving to this house wants me. Yeah. This house wants me here. And, and I feel like we should, at least for myself, talk a little bit about one of the moments that really kind of breaks that I belong to the group versus I belong to this house, which is um, when Eleanor's name is written in chalk. They're just touching it. They're touching it and then they're licking it. And I was like, it's 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 chalk. Let's look at some more. I actually shrieked. I was like, come on! You almost never text me, and I got a fucking text when Andrea was watching that. Because, you know, faithful listeners might not know or might not remember that Andrea is petrified of chalk. I do not like it. I do not like having it on my hands. The idea of this powdery substance and the way it coats, it's bringing something up in my throat right now as we speak. And the fact that two male characters were like... Like, is that really how you diagnose whether that's chalk or anything else? What the fuck? When you first licked it, I was like, oh, okay, it's salt. It's some kind of other, like, symbolic ingredient that is nope. maybe associated with witchcraft. No, it's just fucking goddamn chalk. Fucking but, lick it. But it's interesting because, like, Theo and Eleanor have this really strong kinship. Like, it's kind of flirty, but it's also kind of like sisterhood. And I think there's such an important element with Theo being a queer character, especially, you know, the time it was made even to this day and age. Yeah. Like, Like, its representation is important. Mm -hmm. And I think the dynamic between them is really interesting because um, it's constantly kind of fluctuating and there's, like, various points of jealousy between all of them, like, the four of them. Mm -hmm. And even Markway is kind of, like, flirting with Eleanor. Totally. And she's like, oh, my hero. This anthropologist likes me. I want to talk more about Theodora for sure. But as regards Eleanor, I feel like her... Her feeling uh, a sense of belonging was so tragic that we don't know very much about Eleanor's past short of the fact that she had this poltergeist incident that we learned through Markaway later and that she was thrust into a domestic caregiver role to care for her mom. It's not that she signed up to be a mom, that I have these maternal instincts, I really want to love someone and take care of someone. No, her mom got sick, and presumably because her sister had her own family and her own obligations, all of this fell to Eleanor. And so it fell with a place of pressure. It was it was something that she didn't necessarily sign up for. And so I think for, for a lot of women, and I know this is a touchy, touchy motherfucking subject, for a lot of women, the idea of, yes, now I I'm later in life, I am going to be a wife and a mom, and this is going to be a space where I belong, and there's a community of moms that I'm going to join, and this is a role that has its rewards, and I'm signing up for it, and I'm giving myself over to it. I think the fact that the house preys on Eleanor is because she hasn't fully signed up for that. She craves the acceptance and the comfort that comes with some of these caregiver roles, but but she never chose it. And I think, like, there's these interesting moments throughout the film where, like, Eleanor pretends to have her own apartment. Oh. 
Yeah, it's so embarrassing, but it's also as someone who is, like, living on her own and has their own apartment, it's the fucking dream. There's truly nothing more telling about Eleanor's inner psyche is the fact that she fantasizes about something that we take for granted as having her own space, where she doesn't have to kick her sister-in-law and niece out of her bedroom because they're being fucking assholes to her. And because society, we're still grappling with it, like— what do we do with single women? What do we do with the women who choose to be single and do all these great things and just work and have friends and have pets and family and just, like, live their lives like me? There's slight anxiety about that. Like, now that I'm starting to see people again after my divorce, I've been asked multiple times, so are you dating? Really? And I'm like, no. Have you met men? <laughs> no. I have. It's not pretty. Like, I feel like that's kind of what Eleanor wants. Just this freedom. Just this, like a room of one's own. Virginia Woolf was writing about it, like, you know, decades before The Haunting. And it is still something that so many of us still strive for. It's just mm-hmm. to have a space and just to be and to figure out our own paths through the world. Yeah, I get that. I get why prescriptive life rules are really appealing to people because it gives them a sense of purpose and they know what's expected of them. And there's there's a lot to be said for feeling that like they're contributing to the household in this ordained way and it's organized and it's prescriptive and I know exactly what I need to do and we don't need to negotiate it. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. But, you know, here's Eleanor who never signed up to be a caretaker, wound up a caretaker and is now plagued by guilt. And I also love how Hill House in Robert Wise's film, is full of clutter. Yes. It's full of shit. If you look, like, just at a single frame, there is so much junk and stuff everywhere that it's actually quite claustrophobic and stifling. I feel like when people design haunted houses or conceive of haunted houses, there's a lot of bareness, there's a lot of space, there's a lot of, I don't know, like, cobwebby, dusty corners and stuff, but Hill House is full of shit. Yeah, it's it's a tchotchke bukake. It's a tchotchke bukake? Yeah. Wow. Just came up with that. Do we need to call this episode? Tchotchke bukake? Tchotchke bukake. If I were a drag queen, could that be my name? (laughs) Welcome to the stage. (laughs) Tchotchke bukake. Sashay away. Well, and another thing I think is really interesting is where they identify the kind of quote-unquote hot spot, which is a very cold spot in the house, which is the nursery. Mm Mm-hmm. That is, you know, the center of this paranormal activity where, like, the real bad, freaky stuff is going to happen. And we're not really privy to what happens in that room. No. But, like, Grace goes missing. There's a lot of tension around it. It's a cold spot. And it's like, that's where you put your children. You know, you have your kids and then you just, like, stick them in a room until they're okay to go into their own room and eventually leave the house. Mm -hmm. So this notion of, like, Hill House really preying on all of these kind of heteronormative aspects that we are prescribed is so telling. And that's why, like, I have one of my notes here is, like, Hill House is a troll. Yeah. It's like, you want to believe all this shit? Well, fine. Here you go. And I think it just really speaks to, you know, this film, Hugh Crane, misogynist property developer, like this house is built in his own id. He wanted something like off-center and strange and weird and rambling. And it just becomes this house that doesn't make sense and it's not correct and it's not livable Mm -hmm. for anyone else but Hugh Crane and Hugh Crane dies but he dies off in fucking Europe yeah I thought it was really telling that Hugh Crane lost a wife and then another wife and then a daughter like is anything wrong with the house no 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 the house is fine it's these women inhabiting it that are wrong and weird and even the women who are compelled to inhabit it like Eleanor get punished in that way I don't think that's an accident and I think that's really telling so speaking of rejecting the heteronormative life script speaking of the hauntings more controversial elements and yet I don't even think it was controversial I think it was definitely revolutionary because as you say representation matters according to my notes Giddings original script of the film had the film open with a really spicy breakup scene between Theodora and her female lover where her lover is you know speeding away as she yells at them and there's like I hate you written on lipstick in the mirror her her sexual orientation and singleness 
like, was really, really overt. And I think it still appears in the film, but not as a weird exploitative plot point. And, you know, speaking as a very hetero white lady, I'm going to have my own thoughts on it. But what were your thoughts on Theodora? She is just, like, the effortlessly cool person that comes into your life. Mm-hmm. I Because I probably very much identify with Eleanor in some ways. Just okay. as, like, single lady, just, like, figuring shit out. Mm-hmm. And just, like, one of those women that just comes into your life and you're like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She gives you that confidence just by her being herself, where you're like, oh yeah, we can we can do whatever we want. Let's wear the bright colors. Let's let's do that. And there's a, a bit more in the book about their relationship and their kind of camaraderie and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I think they translated a good amount of it to the film. But I just think she is so cool, but also very human. And it, it's this really interesting kind of tightrope that that character walks, which I think does so much for her. And uh, she's played by Claire Bloom, who's incredible. And I, I don't know if you noticed in the credits, it was like Claire Bloom's outfits by Mary Quant. Yes, yeah. I saw that she had her own stylist to make sure that she was a la mode, not covered in ice cream, but the other a la mode. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing when you encounter someone like that who is so cool and so put together, mm-hmm. it's just like it, it's both intimidating and aspirational. Yeah. She's very cool in the traditional sense. There's an aspect of her that's almost removed. Like, she's a very impassive observer of people. She reads people, and she knows how to push their buttons. And I think that's something that seems kind of socially supernatural until you're like, no, that's a character's trait. That's a strength of character of that person, that they're able to observe and make inferences and just kind of be able to get a rise out of people that way. Now, the inclusion of Theodora's queerness, I read a Monster Zine article by Pam Kesey from issue number six that uh, it focuses on the disappointment of the remake, but it notes that Theodora's hostility begins just as the signs of attraction develop between Eleanor and Markaway, and she ponders, mm-hmm. like, she doesn't really argue, but she ponders whether Theodora's lesbianism functions to create conflict in the picture by way of Theo being jealous of that budding romance. And personally, I find that kind of reductive, even for a 1963 picture. And I I think part of that is me wanting female characters to matter more than their sexual love interests, right? Like, I want there to be more to it than that. And there's a portion where, you know, Eleanor turns on Theo and kind of lobs some pretty homophobic stuff at her. She calls her a natural inconsistency, an unnatural thing, nature's mistake. And I think one of the more affecting scenes of the film is where you see her say that, and you see that kind of land. Like, you see that Theo, who has this impenetrable exterior, kind of like, she looks a little bit wounded by that. And I feel like Eleanor is also a victim of this heteronormative life script, but she's also drank some of that Kool-Aid. And I feel like that comes through in the vitriol that she hurls at Theo. And so my admittedly hetero white lady take Like, I don't like when female characters are token love interests in a story. I don't like the idea that Theo would even fucking care that Eleanor and Mark Away are having their stupid little crush. And I don't believe that Jackson is the kind of writer who would write a woman that way, frankly. My reading is that her being cast as queer precludes her from the heteronormative life script and protects her from Hill House's influence. It Mm. has no power over her. She's impervious to it. And as a narrative bonus, it makes her an objective counterpart for Eleanor. It makes her the scully to her molder. And that's... Ooh, I like that. It's not to say that she wouldn't find the Eleanor and Markaway crush cringy. I did. You did. Yeah. But she needn't be a jealous lesbian to poke fun at that. And I also didn't read her teasing as, like, the cruelty of a jilted love interest. I think she genuinely cares about Eleanor and uses her perceptive abilities to help Eleanor see another side of herself. Yeah, because I think, like, Eleanor is very much this, like, kind of babe in the woods. It's her first time out, and she's like... Here's this attractive woman. Here's this attractive man. What am I to do with all of this? And I feel like Theo, you know, I definitely land on the side of, you know, I think it's more of a friendship rather than um, maybe an overt love interest between Eleanor and Theo. But it's like any good friend who's like, he's married. (laughs) He's fucking married. Have you met his wife? You don't want to hear this, but your hairstyle sucks. Yeah. (laughs) 
And I think that's really, it's notable because they have a moment where it's like a sister. And you see Eleanor kind of like, ah, I fucking hate my sister. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) you're going to hate your sister because somebody who is truly looking out for you, left, right, and center, is not going to be your best friend. Not all the time. Not all the time. So I think one of the most iconic scenes is when when Mark Way is like, ah, Theo, you got a room with Eleanor. And Theo's like, okay. Um, so then the kind of banging and the noises start again. And Eleanor is up and is just like petrified. And she like goes to hold a hand. Oh, yeah. So pulling again from Ruth Franklin's book, she cites that in Shirley Jackson's own notes about the haunting of Hill House, Jackson wrote that the line... God, God, whose hand was I holding is the key to the story. Mm. And as Franklin points out, and as we'll talk about right now, there are multiple interpretations to that. Some of the very common ones are that Eleanor is holding her own hand, Eleanor's disillusionment because she is always alone and kind of realizing that a bit more. Mm -hmm. Franklin's hypothesis is that this kind of unknowing hand, it's symbolic of that we never truly know the person whose hand we're holding, Mm. a life partner, anyone like that. We can never truly fully know another person. And, you know, certainly for me, as I thought about it, I mean, I'm always going to believe the ghosts. Of course. I'm going to believe the ghosts are there. But I think the hand is a ghost drawing Eleanor into Hill House and into this kind of quasi-abusive relationship where it's like, here is this life script for you. Mm -hmm. You want someone to comfort you when you're scared? You want all of this stuff? Well, it's here. It's just not on this plane. Mm. You gotta die. Yeah. And then you'll be part of something. That is what I think is the real cruelty of Hill House, which is it tricks her with all of these things and it makes her believe, like, again, it's a very abusive relationship. And even the line that kind of gets repeated a few times, like, journey's end is where lovers meet. And Eleanor kind of, as we've just talked about, has a few lovers at the end, but she winds up in Hill House. And as the narration switches over to Eleanor, it's the, you know, what walks there walks alone. Yes. And that's the trick. That's the cruelty. That's the evil. That's the scariness Mm -hmm. of it is to be trapped and alone. Yes. Which is the exact opposite of what she wanted. Yeah, and, like, it's such a bleak ending. I feel like nobody talks about, when we talk about the bleakest endings in horror movies, you know, like, you hear a laundry list of things, that The Haunting has a very bleak ending. Eleanor does not defeat this life script. She does not conquer it. She falls victim to it, 100%. And I found a really interesting book, and it's called Ghostly Matters, Haunting and the Sociological Imagination by Avery Gordon. It was published in 1997. I found a PDF, and I'll link it in the show notes for you. But but basically, it perceives haunting as a social phenomenon and as, quote, an index of oppression. And this was republished in 2007 with a new foreword that's in the PDF that you'll find. So the sociological imagination is something that Sociology 101 students will remember. It's a term to describe the framework for understanding social reality that places personal experience within a broader social and historical concept. That, that's that's the hard definition, but basically it's that, you know, the forces that shape us aren't necessarily concrete actions and things. It takes imagination to kind of perceive of something like heteronormativity, to perceive of whiteness. These aren't tangible things. They're kind of abstract. It was first coined by C. Wright Mills in his 1959 book, The Sociological Imagination. And yeah, it just helps us consider that which we can't really see or measure, but nonetheless have a tremendous impact on our ways of thinking and behaving. So Avery Gordon applies this concept as a sort of haunting. And she writes, I quote, I use the term haunting to describe those singular yet repetitive instances when home becomes unfamiliar, when your bearings on the world lose direction, when the over and done with come alive, and when what's been in your blind spot comes into view. Haunting raises specters and it alters the experience of being in time, the way we separate the past, the present, and the future. And I think most of her book concerns psychoanalysis. Mm. I know how we feel about psychoanalysis. There's problematic shit about psychoanalysis. But fundamentally, it's about resurfacing things that you might have buried. And these things can be uh, fruitfully conceived of as haunting you because haunting, unlike 
like trauma demands that something actionable be done to put these ghosts to rest. And uh, there's a really interesting application of Toni Morrison's novel Beloved as an example. She writes that Morrison's social memory is not just history, but haunting. Slavery Mm -hmm. is a ghost that continues to haunt the black experience. And when I think of the ghost that haunts Hill House, it's not just women. It's not just misogyny. It's a particular type of woman who is grappling with motherhood in a way that Shirley Jackson largely grappled with motherhood. You know, she's gone on record as saying, you know, I was not the daughter that my mother wanted. She had feelings about her own kids that were kind of interesting. She wrote articles that were later published as books, books entitled Life Among the Savages, 1953, and Raising Demons, Mm -hmm. 1956. If those titles don't provide a glimpse into how she felt about motherhood. I don't know what would, but like that emotional truth resonated strongly with her readers throughout her career. And I see the seeds of that in The Haunting strongly. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, you know, we're always kind of dealing with as, you know, communities, as individuals, with the echoes of what's come before us. And it, it feels so daunting sometimes to break those cycles. Yeah. I mean, echoes is one way to put it, and haunting is another way to put it. And I feel like we talked about ghosts a bit in uh, in the last episode on Pulse and Suicide Club. We kind of contrasted them with Ringu, where the ghost wanted something, and it wanted some kind of reconciliation. Hill House, have we reconciled the ghosts of Hill House? I don't think so. And and that's because, like, we haven't reconciled our feelings with these things because we as humans constantly perpetuate so many narratives. You know, I feel like right now we're living through something akin to the 1960s where there's so much social upheaval and, like, war and throwing a pandemic. And, like, we are constantly grappling with these same issues and they come again. It's like waves hitting us. And that's why one of the things that strikes me most about The Haunting as well as, you know, of course, they pulled very strongly from The Haunting of Hill House is repetition within this film. Now, there's some, like, really overt ones like the crash on the grounds, Hugh Crane's first wife with Eleanor at the end, the elderly woman knocking for help and ignored, like Mm -hmm. Abigail, and then Eleanor with her mother. Even like you alluded to uh, salt was something I picked up on where Eleanor knocks over a salt shaker and throws it over her shoulder. And then Luke later says this should be burned and then the ground salted. Uh, Luke is even referenced uh, several times, once by Markway and then by himself, as having a strong sense of self-preservation. The stone lions, one of my favorite moments, is uh, Mrs. Dudley repeating the stories to Eleanor and Theo. Yeah. Where she gives them the same kind of like, welcome to Hill House. No one will come here after dark. Uh-huh. Like, I love that. It's so great. Like, I feel like the Dudleys are so interesting in their their hostility and in their like devout irrational protection of Hill House. But then Grace pays them off with like five bucks, which I'm sure is like a hundred dollars today. Um, <laughs> but like they're like, how did you get in here? And she's like, I fucking paid Mrs. Dudley. She let me in. Yeah, yeah. Money fucking talk. <laughs> like I love the kind of drama that they bring to like this place is evil. Mm-hmm. This is a curse place. Like I love it. it's great. It's so great. It's almost even like like there's a fractured maternal sense for Mrs. Dudley. It's like I'll feed you and I'll make you yes. delicious meals. But I'm going to treat you like shit, and I'm not spending the night. Yeah, and you get the same spiel as the other one. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I think you know the most overt one and probably the most important one is um, something we've alluded to with the opening narration by who we learned to be Dr. Markway, which kind of gives us the history of Hill House. And then we get Eleanor's voiceover throughout the film of her experience, and then she becomes the omniscient narrator at the end. We get the kind of chilling lines of those who walk there walk alone and sensitive Thoughtful audience members can infer that this applies to Eleanor, who is now alone Mm -hmm. in Hill House. It's the final cruelty to her life. And uh, pulling again from Ruth Franklin's book, Franklin cites Jackson's lecture called Garlic in Fiction, which Mm. I love. And the basic thesis of this lecture is that you can't and shouldn't overpower your writing with stylistic flourishes 
but you have to use enough so that the audience is hooked. It's like using garlic to accent a dish. Jackson uses a basic set of images that the reader will associate with the characters. She reuses these symbols and moments in her story. This allows these signifiers to become quote-unquote artificially loaded words, which serve to remind the audience of key characteristics of the protagonist or of moments within the narrative. So all of those little things that are planted, like opening narration crashes, the repeating of the story salt, um, stone lions, you know, all of those little things, they feel like familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. We're clocking these moments and it just kind of serves to, I think, illustrate the artifice which Hill House is building. Mm-hmm. This kind of evil of, again, as you mentioned, life scripts. It's playing within these moments of like, you're meant to be here, but at what cost? Yeah. I appreciate that dichotomy. That's something that's very mundane outside of Hill House is very significant yes. within Hill House because it speaks to, you know, like difference in perspective and difference of context. So that's basically our take on 1963's The Haunting. Did we arrive in the same place like that the house was haunted? by heteronormative life script. Yes. Okay, all right, okay. Yeah. I just wanted that. To I'm about to burn my bra. <laughs> <laughs> Your girdle. My girdle. <laughs> but I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention a few of the remakes, um, really touch briefly on them. Obviously, we've done a whole half of an episode on Jan de Bont's The Haunting from 1999. I can't even believe that is a remake of this film. It's like, no, I actually rewatched it this week, and it is utter nonsense. The highlight of that movie is... Owen Wilson getting decapitated. Yeah, it's a highlight. Owen Wilson should have never been there in the first place. What is this portal to hell? No, none of them should have been there. It was like Lily Taylor's precursor to being the sacrificial mom in The Fucking Conjuring. Yeah. Like, and it, it's they make Hugh Crane the big baddie who's like haunting everything and he's oppressing these children ghosts and Eleanor is, is played by Lily Taylor is related to them and she's like, I will not let you hurt the children. Oh, God. And you're like, Oh, God. Yes. And then cut to more recently, the Haunting of Hill House series on Netflix, 10 episodes, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Mike Flanagan, and he wrote or co-wrote a bunch of the episodes as well. And the best terminology I can come up with for this um, series is it's like a remix Mm-hmm. Of the haunting of Hill House, Rick a Rick a Hill House, exactly. Like it takes so many of the elements and even a few elements that were left out of the 1963 haunting and kind of throws them in, but makes it about family. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I did not care for it. And God help me, I realized my hell when I rewatched. I started it when it first came out and it didn't grab me, so I didn't finish it. But I rewatched all of it for this episode, and I realized my hell. My hell would be if I had to be a fucking emotional support ghost or memory for a fucking man. (laughs) Which is what Carla Gudino does for Timothy Hutton's character, who's like, quote-unquote, Hugh Crane. And when he's like, I don't know how to talk to my kids because I'm a man. And she's (laughs) like, why don't you say this? Don't say that. And it's like, I know there's conjecture in the series of if she's a memory or a ghost, but I was like, that's horrifying to me. Yeah, she's mothering from beyond the grave. It's It's horrifying to me. And the great life hack of just bringing your dying corpse to Hill House so you can hang out in the afterlife. And I hate it because the chilling note of The Haunting is those who walk their walk alone. Mm -hmm. And they change it. The very last lines of The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix is those who walk their walk together. And I was like, it warms the cockles of my heart. Spew fucking chunks. Look, it's not a great series. There were things that I liked about it. I did appreciate that, you know, he brought the characters back in like a weird salad of different, you know, like you're this now and you're that now. And like there's still an Eleanor and there's still a Theo and Theo's still queer. And it's, 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 it's a little bit different. I would almost take like, would you stratify the Netflix series below the 90s remake? But this, okay, so this is just a me thing. All right. I like the story. Stupidness of the 99 remake. I can tolerate that more than I can tolerate the maudlin qualities of the more recent Netflix. I don't know. I'll take creative stupidity over stupid stupidity. And I love stupid stupidity. (laughs) 
decapitate all the Wilson Brothers Hill House. <laughs> have at her. But yeah, like so it's still going on. It's going to have more remakes because it is such a rich story. I, I think more people will come to it in coming years and um, rediscover it and want to have their own kind of take and say on it, and I am here for it. But yeah, I think the 1963 version is just so special. And, you know, the two remakes have so much egregious CGI. Yeah. And it's so, like, there's some practical stuff, too, I know. But, like, it's a lot of CGI, and it's so over the top, and it's like, just pull it back. Yes. This is when, I don't know, I don't want to call it a franchise, but this is when where I'm just like, yeah, look, the original did it right, in that the original not only used practical effects, but it hit the nail on the head, which is this slice script thing that is so terrifying and so prescriptive and a ghost that still resonates in 2022. And, you know, I think a smart remake will be one that tackles that. And if that doesn't happen, fuck, we'll always have this version. And it's timeless. We'll always walk these halls. We'll always walk these halls together. (laughs) What halls are we walking next month, Alex? Well, that's a great question, Andrea. (laughs) I know the answer. Do you? I do. I have it on my whiteboard. Oh, yay. So I feel like I'm going to let you say it, but Mm -hmm. I just want to preface this of like, I feel like this is, we're going a little off script here. If you want to talk about life scripts, we're, we're, we're taking a bit of a detour. Alex actually asked me if this one was horror adjacent. And I was like, I really don't think I think I asked you if it was horror enough for us to do. Horror enough. And so I think that's going to be our first order of business when we tackle it in an episode is like the fact that that question question even exists because it's it's something that I I have a lot of feelings about this film and I, I think it's one I really want to know what you think about I it. I do too I, I think it was actually pretty formative to my horror fandom mm, and uh, interesting so I think it's going to be really cool me and my best Droog and I are going to walk the horrid holes of a clockwork orange <laughs> it's Kubrick it's classic literature it's dystopian, I suppose, for its time. It has its whole vernacular, and uh, and we're going to go there into the ultra-violence. We are going to undergo the Ludovico technique. We are going to do all that shit and more in our May episode. Yes. How's that? That was fucking great. I normally don't even know what the next episode no, is. No, usually much I have, less have like your these... beautiful space staring blankly <laughs> at me. It's it's I, I'm sad I missed that this month. Um, so until an offer that is too good to be true lands at your doorstep, office hours are closed. No. Oh, I'm scared now. Oh. There's a ghost in my house. Of your memory.